Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of the Dispatches podcast. It is great to be back with you again. If you're new here, why not hit that little subscribe or follow button, whatever it says on the platform that you're listening on right now. And if you've been tuning in for a while, why not give us a rating, maybe a few stars or a comment if your platform allows you to do that. All of that really, really helps the show. Last but not least, before we jump into today's topic of conversation, uh, we have a special patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast that we publish every single week. Now, we're not able to produce these free-to-air episodes every week. Time is limited. I wish we could do more, but time is limited, so we can't do that. However, every single week we do publish a patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast. So what that means is if you become a patron with $5 or more per month, then you will get access to an episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week, guaranteed, plus the free-to-air ones on top of that as well. So all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. There's a link in the show notes and uh, sign up with uh, $5 or more per month contribution and you will get access to the Dispatches podcast every single month. So what that means is even when there's no free to air, you are still guaranteed to get an episode every single week. And that's most weeks of the year, barring the big things like holidays and unforeseen sickness and stuff like that. And a huge thank you to all of our patrons. You guys are awesome. It's thanks to you that in the last fortnight we've been able to upgrade our microphones and also upgrade our um, podcasting uh, uh, studio deck that we use. Um, so we've got a really awesome uh, high-level deck now that we can record and it's portable and, and it's it's great. So a huge thank you to our patrons. You guys are awesome. It's thanks to you that this podcast is able to go from strength to strength. Right, let's jump into today's topic of conversation. And the topic today is remorse, redemption, and a pagan nation without mercy. And I want to talk about the Sam Uffendil incident. Now, normally, uh, to my way of thinking, this probably wouldn't wa- warrant much of a, of a podcast maybe just a passing comment or, you know, I talked about it earlier this week in passing, but a whole podcast dedicated to this episode I don't think would be normal. Uh, Usually these sorts of things, I think, are just noise that rob us of our inner peace and they're not a good thing. So the stuff on social media, the constant media bombardment that's all just designed to to sell clicks and and, and to make revenue for those organisations, it's a very uh, destructive trap to get stuck in and it's very easy to get stuck in that trap and all it ends up doing usually is just robbing us of our peace. And so this would have been sort of one of those more gossipy type things. It wouldn't have, I don't think, have normally um, crossed my mind to actually dedicate a podcast to this. But what we've seen this week is something else. We've seen now three to four solid days, and it's still trailing, of what I would call a frenzied witch hunt, a a frenzied inquisition. Uh, I think a lot of people have lost perspective, and more importantly, and why I wanted to do today's episode, is that I think that there are some very real dangers associated with this. And, and so I want to talk about those dangers and what I see are some very clear warning signs about a potential new way of uh, operating and living in New Zealand that is merciless 
and it is ideologically motivated and it is just really, really destructive. It will harm the life of our nation and it's not a good thing. And so that's why I thought this was worth talking about. Basically, I think we need to stop being dragged along mindlessly. And all of us, I include myself in this, it's very easy to fall into that trap of being dragged along mindlessly. But we should be people who actually have a guiding philosophy. We should have a compass, a moral compass. We should have a north star, which is directing us and guiding us so that when things happen in life, they don't happen to us. We experience them and we go through experiences, but we always have a compass. We always have a North Star, which guides us through the things happening around us. And I think far too often now, far too many of us, and I, I include myself in this, we get pulled into these situations where we are just dragged along mindlessly. We're not considering what's actually going on. We're not considering the deeper implications or the potential issues that might be associated with things. And I think this is one of those incidents where we, we do need to stop and actually consider uh, what it is to actually live a proactive life grounded in truth and goodness and how that might play out and how we might uh, be cautious and prudent in our concerns uh, in relation to what has happened this week with the whole Sam Uffendil thing. Uh, one thing I should say straight up front was I'm someone myself who when I was in school, I experienced a couple of different bouts of bullying. So when I was in primary school, I experienced a bout of bullying that was so serious and included physical beatings that I had to be moved into another class. And that was really quite a good thing for me, actually. Uh, I also experienced uh, a couple of other bouts at different times when I was in high school. Uh, a couple of times that actually got quite serious. My whole schooling life wasn't marked by bullying and I am grateful that for me, I'm not someone who was so uh, terribly traumatized by that, that it did great harm uh, in an ongoing way in their life. I don't know for some people that is the case, but for whatever reason, uh, it, it's not something that did such uh, permanent damage to me. I, I look back on those incidents and I recognize that they were not nice and not good, but I know what it is to be bullied, I guess is the point I'm trying to make here. And I, I think this is uh, something that matters when you when you think about this. And I'll get back to that point a bit later on. The other thing I want to say is this. Um, this isn't about party politics for me. I don't actually know Sam Uffendal. I don't think I've ever met the guy. I'd never even heard him speak until I heard him at the press conference a couple of days ago. Um, before that point, all I knew about him was that he had won the Tauranga by-election. And I'd seen a bit of stuff on Twitter and, and social media, the sort of the usual talking heads. Uh, there were people on one side sort of saying he was a great guy. And then there were lots of people on Twitter in particular who were just accusing him of being a privileged white man and stuff like that. This is before any of this sort of broke. That's, that's all I really knew about the guy. Uh, so for me, this isn't about party politics. This could be these exact same uh, scenarios, this exact same immorality and stain on uh, her copybook could have happened to Jacinda Ardern and I would feel exactly the same way and I'd be saying exactly what I'm saying to you or about to say to you right now in this podcast episode because it's not about party politics, it's about principles and this really, really matters. And I have been truly alarmed by what I have seen this week unfolding in our nation and I don't say that lightly. I think that politics should be the place where you get to encounter philosophy, principles and, and policy. There should be a sense that you are engaging with people who have a, a philosophy around leadership, 
and I think primarily that should be a sense of service and of giving of oneself to your nation. I believe it is a place where you should have um, sound uh, moral philosophy and and truth and goodness and a vision that is for the human person and for reality and for human anthropology that is then reflected in various policy proposals. I think those are the kind of debates and discussions, and I think it should be conducted in a rational and charitable kind of way. I think that's what the domain of politics should be. But what we've seen this week is a, I think, a tearing down and undermining and effectively, I think, actually a complete destruction of that and what we are looking or staring down the barrel of now, I think, is just truly concerning uh, as to what and how politics is viewed and what this, as a result of this week, how clearly a very loud vocal minority, and I think aided by people in the media, and I don't say that lightly, I'll, I'll talk about this and I'll, I'll present evidence of this as we go through the podcast, uh, have actually contributed to undermining uh, the political life and the wider life of our nation in a way that is really, really not good. There's there's quite a few aspects to this, so I want to just share and touch on different aspects that I think are important first. And then what I want to do is I want to end by talking about what I think are some important principles that we should consider. I make no bones about the fact that I am a conservative and very much in the mould of Edmund Burke. I am of the Judeo-Christian and I would say, as well as that natural law, conservative tradition. I am proud of that. I think it's a really beautiful and good thing. I think it is the most realistic and reliable guide to the human experience. I think uh, objective reality bears that out. The the evidence of the human experience bears that out to be true. Um, and despite the fact that we have walked wildly away from that in recent decades in the West, and to our great detriment and undoing, uh, I believe that um, that tradition is is a beautiful one, it is a good one, it is a true one and it needs to be nurtured and protected and I think um, in as many places as possible we need to um, to actually uh, recover that. I think that, that really, really matters a lot and so what I want to do at the end of this um, episode is I want to talk about some principles from that uh, conservative Judeo-Christian tradition that I think really matter in how we evaluate the situation and what perhaps the obligations on us might be uh, when we consider Sam Ufendul and we consider uh, how we might uh, approach this particular issue and how we might pass judgment or not pass judgment as the case may be. Uh, so let's start with just different aspects of this that really strike me I think is noteworthy. First of all, there has been some atrocious moralising over the past four or five days, just absolutely atrocious and it really speaks to the loss of, of an authentic guiding North Star, an authentic moral philosophy, and some very intelligent people saying some truly inane, I think, things. And they just keep getting regurgitated and recycled. Now, I know for some people these are just political um, stalking points, uh, as in they are weapons that they wield against their political opponents, uh, but they probably wouldn't wield them against their own political allies and friends. We'll talk more about that because we're getting a real-world example of that right now, funnily enough, at the end of this week. But here are some of the different aspects of the atrocious moralizing that we've seen over the past week or so. We've, we've seen people suggesting that 
the time between the incident and the apology proves that Sam Ufendal is not sincere. He's not truly repentant or remorseful for what he did, that he waited so long. And lots of people have been claiming this. I'm sorry, but that is simply not true. The time between uh, when someone makes an apology for an act and when the act happened has no bearing at all on contrition. In fact, you are falling into a very dangerous trap if you think that someone apologizing very quickly after an act is proof that they are truly contrite. In actual fact, uh, in my experience, I've seen people who are very quick to apologize often, but they never amend their behavior. They just keep doing the bad thing, quickly apologizing, and then before long, they're back into it again. It, it's, it's not a, a proof of anything. Genuine contrition has nothing to do with the amount of time between the apology and the incident. A person for lots of different reasons can take a long time to even realize that what they did say in their youth was wrong. A person can sit on something for a very long time and feel great regret and sadness and remorse about that thing and not take any further action because of all sorts of factors. Like maybe they're just so ashamed of what they did, they just don't even feel that they can go back and revisit it. And they feel a lot safer and more comfortable just putting it away in a chest, locking that chest away tightly and dropping that in the bottom of the you know the old personal uh, psychological wardrobe and not going back to it. Uh, despite the fact they feel great remorse, that they just they just don't want to face it. I think in particular blokes, you've got to recognize this. We live in a culture with a distorted and uh, broken vision of human anthropology. And so we don't understand masculinity and femininity very well right now. We've got all sorts of confusions in that area. And I think that leads us to make um, major mistakes. Like we forget that men and women actually, as a general rule, they deal with these kind of things differently. And there's the way that a man will approach an issue like this that is often different from the way that a female will approach it in blokes in particular. We're not really particularly good at dealing with uh, past incidents. We often actually have to be motivated even by others and prodded in quite a big way to actually even go and deal with them. So the time between an incident and apology it has absolutely no bearing at all on whether or not someone is truly remorseful. So we need to stop saying that. Uh, number two is people claiming like Paddy Gower did the other day that uh, he had misled the electorate. No, that's not true. He didn't disclose any of his past, his youthful uh, moral failings uh, to the electorate, but that's not the same thing as misleading the electorate. They are two different actions and there are two different moral um, implications or issues at play here. So if you have uh, failed to disclose something, that is not at all the same when you're thinking about the moral implications of a situation where you have deliberately lied to people. You have misled people, you have lied to them, you have deliberately tried to hide information or to be deceptive with people. That's what misleading is. And misleading the electorate would involve him basically not doing things that deliberately deceive the electorate about the incident. So maybe uh, in the extreme case, he would have just lied and said, no, I never did any of that stuff. I never bullied anyone. I, I never I never had too much to drink and, and, and um, said abusive things to one of my flatmates when I was 19. No, I never did any of that stuff. I never bullied someone when I was 15 or 16. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm as clean as a whistle. So that's clearly misleading. Or maybe he says, yeah, I did bullying, but it was only really minor stuff and and you know I, I, I remember I um, I called someone a name and then I pushed another kid um, at school 
Like and and you know, so that's misleading, right? He didn't do that. He just didn't disclose to the electorate. And we've got people claiming that he's deliberately misled people here. No, again, this is flawed moral philosophy. We just lump all these things in together. We don't know how to think well about morality and moral actions and what the various differences might be in these situations. Uh, others have said, well, he should have come clean to the electorate. He should have confessed this to the electorate. To which I sort of say, well, okay, that's a that I think that is a debate worthy point. But I can't see how that actually makes sense in the real world. What what do you imagine this would actually look like? Do you mean that he would start every candidate meeting? Because you'd have to, right? You'd have to tell everyone constantly because you couldn't guarantee that you know, you you couldn't say it once and then discover that um, the next three meetings were three different groups of people who had never heard about your past. So you'd have to keep repeating it. Every media interview that you did, every meeting that you did, you'd have to actually uh, make sure, right? Otherwise, otherwise, the accusation is you are now hiding something. So if, if this whole idea is that he should come clean, then how does this and what does this actually look like? Does he call a press conference one day just to come clean and to confess? this issue to the public? Does he keep repeating it at every single meeting? What the heck does that actually look like? What is it actually achieving? And and what are you doing by that? You start a meeting and, and you say, for example, this is a candidate's meeting where we're supposed to be trying to discern the person's current character, not their character from 22 years ago, which is not the same. It could have been good 22 years ago and really bad now or vice versa, bad back then, and now he might be a man of good character. And so we need to discern his character right now, and we need to understand what the policies are, what he is going to stand for or not stand for if he is elected to represent the people. But we're apparently supposed to start every meeting with like some sort of um, public confessional session, an act of contrition, where, what, all of the candidates? Because why would you just have one candidate doing this? Wouldn't the other candidates then also be required to list their sins? And why are we doing this? What is the point of this? To me, this just doesn't make any sense. It is more harmful to the life of a society, I believe, to, to actually do this kind of thing than the way that it actually unfolded. He told the party leadership about the incident, he apologized and made amends to the victim, and then he carried on as a man who committed an act of immorality in his youth. Remember, the first incident happened when he was in high school. What was he, 15 or 16 when that happened? And then the next incident happened when he was at university and drinking a lot, as he has confessed already publicly and said there were drugs involved in his life as well. He's a 19-year-old man at that point. But there's this sort of weird idea that he's once guilty, always guilty. Again, I don't think people who are levelling that at Sam Ufinder would ever tolerate it for themselves or for their uh, political allies or people that they like or leaders that they look up to and admire. I don't think they would accept that kind of reasoning for a second. And rightly so, they shouldn't because it's bad moral reasoning. Uh, I've seen people saying that um, that one particular person who is a sort of celebrity doctor type um, in New Zealand who was on Twitter the other day claiming that she could tell based on his maiden speech that he wasn't really contrite. She was looking for signs in his maiden speech and, and she said a couple of things. One was she said that people who are truly humble and sorry for what they've done you can tell because they keep talking about it. They always raise and talk about their failings. And that's proof that they are truly contrite. 
and he doesn't keep talking about his failings. That is absolute nonsense. I'm sorry. Again, this is atrocious moralizing. It is absolutely not true. There are lots of reasons why people wouldn't keep revisiting their moral failures. So some people, the way they deal with it is they will talk a lot about it, but not everyone is different. Other people, they will deal with it and then they will move on. They want to actually put the shame and the guilt and everything else in their past. And so they don't want to keep revisiting it. We're not all the same. We don't handle it the same way. There is no science of guilt. There is no science of contrition at all. This is utter nonsense. And I'm not surprised in a society of sort of technocracy where we think that maybe we can find a technocratic way of of applying the scientific method to judge whether a person is truly contrite or not, which is what this is trying to do. But you can't. You just can't. It is absolutely crazy. I know people. In fact, I've known, I'm thinking of one particular person in my life from a few years ago, or quite a few years ago actually, who would regularly talk about his serious moral failings. And if I believed this advice, I'd have to say this person was truly contrite because he would talk about them and he would say how regretful he was of them. But then that person would regularly engage in, uh, and I, I can remember several incidents over over a, a period of a, one or two years of serious violence that he engaged in as an adult after regularly, and, and he would always go back and he would say how sorry he was. And uh, funnily enough too, he was quick to apologize as well. But then there was no, there was actually no transformation. And so all of these supposed rules that this person is proclaiming on Twitter are just simply not true. And by the way, reading the man's maiden speech and 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 trying to evaluate him based on his maiden speech, I was trolling through it looking for signs. I'm sorry, th- that is so deficient because and, and and by the way, that just doesn't that just speak to the sort of vacuousness of our age, that you think that by looking at a political speech, you can tell whether someone has moral character or not. I'll let you in on a little secret. That's probably one of the worst places you could go to try and discern a person's moral character. How you discern a person's moral character is by looking at their actions, not what they say, but how they say it, not what they proclaim to believe, but what they actually live. That's where you see moral character. It is actions that show character, not words. And I think that's really important. And this person is saying, well, no, we look at his words and we'll tell whether he's got character or not. And that is so vacuous. And and I'm not surprised that people who sort of get sucked in a little bit by the fact that we have uh, several different leaders around the West at the moment who are very good with words. They are very good um uh, speakers and and orators uh, in a particular way. I don't think they're great orators, but they know how to speak emotionally. And I think often it is very duplicitous. So they present one particular idea, but they don't really back it up in policy or how they live and they do other things that are completely contrary to it. But we get so swooned and, and um, wooed by the words that we fail to recognize that that's not actually where you find character. And by the way, people saying, well, he talked a lot about law and order. But look at this, he beat a guy up when he was a boy. And as if somehow that disqualifies him, when in actual fact, when you think about it, a person who has done bad things in their life has been truly remorseful and has redeemed themselves out of that past is probably actually a more qualified law and order spokesperson in some ways than a person who is absolutely pure and very sheltered and has never, ever made mistakes in that regard ironically. So, you know, that that whole accusation could go both ways. It just doesn't carry any weight. Uh, a lot of people have talked about the fallibility of memory issue. They've said, oh, he's not being sincere or something dodgy's going on because he says he can't remember. So the claim has been made by 
the the bullying victim when he was young that um, that bedposts were used. And Sam Uffendall says, look, um, no, I, I, that, as far as I can recall, that never happened. There were fists. He was, he's quite open about what he's confessed here, what they did. He said there was a physical beating that was delivered to this guy, but there were no bedposts used. And I'm a little bit uncertain about that point. So one possibility is that um, that Sam Uffendall is telling a lie, right? So he did he did use bedposts, he knows it, and he's lying. Another possibility is that he did this, but he can't remember, and we'll come back to that point in a second. And and secondly, or thirdly, sorry, is the possibility that both parties are telling the truth, so that maybe one of the boys there actually had a bedpost and was using it, but the others, or maybe Sam Ifindel, wasn't. And so Sam Ifindel's telling the truth, and so is the victim. That's another possibility. But it seems no one is even considering any of this, because I think it's quite clear, we're not actually engaging in a process of trying to discover truth here. We are literally just lynching someone. And when you conduct a lynch mob, a witch hunt, you don't care about the truth. You care about emotions. You get driven by the psychosis of the mob. You don't really stop to think deeply and try and discover and take an inquisitorial approach to try and find out what might actually be the truth. On the question of fallibility of memory, though, here's the thing. I have experiences in my life that I look back on. I was actually suspended when I was in high school for an incident, and I won't go into all the gory details, but basically I was I was mucking around with fireworks at school. I bought fireworks to school, little sort of um, uh, like bottle rocket type things, uh, those little tiny skyrockets, and we were lighting them and throwing them around, and I was being a clown and trying not to get caught by teachers, of course, and there was an incident where one of these um, skyrockets accidentally, it wasn't on purpose, but it ended up in the bag of a junior student and he was playing basketball and it, it lit his PE gear on fire and destroyed his PE gear. And I ended up, I mean, at that point, there was no hiding what was going on. And I ended up getting suspended over that incident. So I remember it. I remember what happened. I remember the outcome. I remember getting back from the suspension and what happened to me because there was another incident associated with it. But there's one quite important incident in that chain of events. And it is quite an important factor in that whole uh, that whole incident and I can't for the life of me remember whether I did A or I did B. I just can't remember. And it's been that way for quite some years. Uh, in fact, it wasn't long after I left high school that I just stopped remembering what whether I did A or whether I did B in this particular. It wasn't, a, uh, you know, wasn't anything dramatic or evil or anything, but, but it was important. And so it was a very important lesson for me in the fallibility of human memory. And so it is quite possible that you have a person who does something like this and 22 years later is not necessarily capable of remembering all of the various aspects of it. And and based on my own experience, I don't see why we wouldn't actually uh, understand that that is it's just the basic reality of the human experience. But as I said, I think it's also equally likely that someone is misremembering here or that both of them are remembering correctly. So, but, but as I said, we're not really interested in the truth. It's just a frenzied, unthinking witch hunt. So we don't really care too much about any of the other stuff. Another thing that we hear a lot of is people who, and, and this is so bizarre to me, people who seem to think that they are capable of reading the soul of Sam Uffendil, that they are capable of understanding that he is guilty, that he has been insincere, that he doesn't mean this, that this is all a lie and a sham. And I just, I just want to gently uh, shake those people, and, and I, you know, I don't literally mean shake them, but metaphorically, and say, "Hey, look, uh, just so you're aware." You cannot read anybody else's conscience. You cannot read their soul. You cannot know their heart and their mind. So stop acting like you can because you can't. You are not competent to make that 
judgment. I'm sorry, you are using nothing more than superficial standards which don't actually tell you much that is meaningful to pass judgment on this man and to make these bold declarations about Harry's this and Harry's that and you know he's not sincere. I'm sorry, you don't. You can't know his conscience. You can't know his heart and his mind. None of us can. And so we need to stop acting that way. Um, atrocious moralizing uh, really hit peak levels when online I saw Harry Tam, and people were sharing this. Harry Tam, that's right, the one of the senior leaders of the mongrel mob. Yeah, that mongrel mob, the uh, criminal bikey gang that is the mongrel mob, uh, shared a lengthy um, uh, condemnation and uh, chastisement of Sam Ufendal and his morality and his moral character, which Harry Tam, a senior leader in a criminal enterprise, right, a very violent criminal enterprise, uh, is here uh, telling us about the moral character of Sam Ufendal for incidents that happened 20 years ago in which Sam Ufendal has publicly uh, disowned and disassociated himself from and has shown, I think, at this stage, uh, all the indications that he is truly contrite about those events, including actually apologising to, to the victim. But no, Harry Tam is now apparently the high priest of morality in, in the eyes of a lot of people in this country. This is just astounding to me. No, no he's not. Harry Tam does not have the moral character, as far as I'm concerned, to be passing judgment on the moral character of another person. It's it's just, yeah, the, when I read that, I just, I thought this is, man, this has reached peak levels of uh, mob mentality at this point. Uh, I've seen other people claiming that he got away with it. No, he didn't get away with it. He was expelled. He was told, you are never to return to the school. Get out, you're gone. They kicked him out of the school. That's about as serious as it gets with a school. Being expelled, that's it. That's the end of the line. Suspension is getting close. And, and I'm kind of lucky I didn't because I had a couple of suspensions in high school and I'm very lucky that I had uh, teachers who were willing to sort of bear with me for a bit. Um, but uh, otherwise I could have been expelled as well. And expulsion was very serious, very, very serious. That's it. That's You're getting booted out. It doesn't get any more serious than that. And people saying, yeah, but they didn't call the cops. Well, again, as I said in my podcast on Monday, um, you might not be aware of this, but the notion of calling the police to a school was actually not a common thing at all. This is a very modern and recent phenomenon, this idea of calling the police to deal with behavioural issues in a school. Uh, in actual fact, the schools used to deal with it themselves, and the only time probably the police would be called would be as if something extremely serious was going on that was out of control uh, at that moment. The schools just had the wherewithal to recognise that they had authority, and back then, uh, compared with now, I think there was a lot more respect for hierarchy and for the authority of teachers and teaching staff in the school. And so they actually did have a legitimacy, a moral legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of people and parents. They were trusted to do that job and they just generally got on with doing a pretty reasonable job, I think. Mistakes were made, no doubt about it. But I, I don't think you can say that things are better today uh, than, than what they were as far as discipline in schools goes, uh, than what they were uh, 20, 30 years ago. They're just different. Right? There's different problems now, and I think some of those problems are actually a lot more serious now today. But the point is that they weren't always calling the cops. It was not the norm to do that. Serious incident resulted in people getting expelled. That It was generally sort of, from my memory of things and recollection of things, it was sort of 
understood or recognized that like a school was a place that had its own sphere of influence. And so what happened on the school was the school's responsibility to deal with and punish people for. They didn't outsource the punishment to the police. And and so you just it wasn't the norm to do that kind of thing. He didn't get away with it. He got expelled. Um, now, I've heard someone else say in the last couple of days, well, we can't know if he did this sort of thing more recently. So I, I, this person, I was having a conversation with them and, and I pointed out the clearly historical nature of these immoral events. And the person said, yeah, but we can't know if he did these things or has engaged in these behaviours more recently, so he's got to go. To which I say, that's a terrible standard because you are now judging someone as being guilty based on what you don't know that they've done or not done. That's insane. That is just a terrible piece of of moral reasoning and, and moral rationale to apply to a situation. Effectively, what you could say is, well, if I, I don't like you, so I can find an incident in your past that you've, well, you've done something wrong. I, I can now hold you accountable today just by saying, well, I don't know if you might have also done this yesterday, so you've got to go. I mean, that's just, you wouldn't accept that if someone said that to you in your place of employment, right? You were sacking you. We found out that 30 years ago, you uh, swore at your teacher, uh, you threw books at the teacher, and you were expelled from school. And uh, we just don't know if you maybe have done this or could do this uh, more recently, so we're sacking you. You wouldn't accept that. You would say that is unjust. That is not a good way to think about this. And then, of course, there's the the people who are saying, well, the apology wasn't sincere because the apology happened 11 months before uh, his uh, political uh, career, so the announcement that he was going into politics. So this was just a cynically timed thing. Well, in response to that, I would say, what are you talking about? First of all, it assumes a, a, um, something uh, quite, uh, I think, unprovable. It assumes that he knew he was actually going to get the call up in 11 months' time. There's no, there's no indication that that was the case. It wasn't known, for example, that Tauranga was actually going to be available as an electorate, uh, a vacant electorate at that stage. Remember, Simon Bridges was still in the seat. There was no indication that he was leaving. And so... As I understand it, there was a sort of a general thinking that maybe he might be looking at another seat and that might come up in another year or two's time. So Tauranga happened a lot earlier than expected. And if that had been the case, it would have been probably, what, two or three years between the apology and when his political career was announced. Would people still be making that judgment? I'll talk about that in a moment because I actually think they would still be making the same claim. Uh, But secondly, here's the thing. People are forgetting that you can actually have something that is two things at the same time. So you can have a situation where, and this is not uncommon, where someone perhaps is being mentored by another person and the mentor uh, says to them, hey, you should actually go and make amends for what you've done there. You need to go and speak to this person. It is the right thing to do. And you're also about to start this new career and you want to have made sure that you've put everything right in your life that you're truly sorry for before you start this new career. So in that situation, the apology is both sincere and genuine and and, and a genuine act of contrition uh, to the victim of something or some wrongdoing that you've done. And also it is a good thing to do for the new job or career that you're about to embark on. It's both and. But we're acting with this bizarre false uh, sort of dichotomy that it's it's one or the other, that it can't actually be both. And here's the other thing, remember, that it's often, particularly again in the life of blokes, we're not very good at this. And I've had experiences of this in my own life. It's not until someone actually required me to go and take that step that I go and make proper amends for something. Things that I've held uh, sadness and sorrow and contrition about 
for quite some time, but I haven't acted on because I'm just too ashamed or I'm too embarrassed and no one is there to really sort of prod me and poke me to go and do it. There's no motivating factor. And so I just put it off because quite frankly, it's easier not to have to deal with uncomfortable things. That's the reality of the human experience. I've often said to people, uh, in fact, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, uh, imagine this situation. Imagine it was your priest or your pastor, your church minister or some other leader that you really look up to. And imagine this, the Sam Uffendal story was their story, exact same scenario, except it wasn't politics, of course, it was some form of Christian leadership or religious leadership that they were going into. And just uh, 11 months before, say, they became a pastor or 11 months maybe before they left seminary or entered seminary, they went and apologized to that person. What would you think? Would you look at your pastor, your minister and say, no, that's clearly not sincere? This is clearly not sincere. They were only doing this because uh, they wanted to make themselves look good in front of a congregation or they wanted to make themselves, uh, they, they, they were sure they wanted to get into seminary and so they were just making sure that, that this was just a box ticking exercise. I don't think you would make that judgment at all because we recognize in other situations that something can be both one thing and another thing at the same time. It's not, and in fact, you, you, that, what this is, is it's, there's no way to know I get back to that main point again. We have no way of reading this man's soul. There's no way to tell at all about whether or not that apology was a sham, just a cynical political ploy, or whether or not it was something that was a, a reflection of a man who has held contrition for quite some time about his behavior and then took that final step, finally took the step that he should have taken. Uh, you know, however, I don't know how you determine this, but you know, earlier you might say. And, and so th what that means is we're left with really one thing. We are left with his words and his explanations and I think his recent behaviours. And when you combine all of those things together, I don't see any indication to not take him at his word. I think the charitable, humane thing to do, unless you actually have proof of otherwise, is to actually accept a man at his word in this situation. I think that's the only way you can have a functioning humane society. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, of course, there's been huge hypocrisy in all of this as well, because there have been a lot of people uh, who have been demanding this man's resignation and, and saying all sorts of uh, very intense and loud and very vocal things about what they think should happen to him, but they haven't acted this way with other politicians and it's this, this has been something that's very obvious on Twitter there is this and, and also in the media engagement I think about someone like Trevor Mallard who was able to get away with a lot of serious stuff not in the past but actually in his political career you, you might remember the incident where what was it um, 11, 12 years ago he he physically assaulted Tao Hanare another MP he punched an MP at Parliament remember that? Yeah, maybe you've forgotten that. Uh, of course, there was the incident where he um, falsely accused a, a staffer of rape and then um, the taxpayer had to actually pay out money to that person. And then, of course, there was just a couple of months ago when he was turning the sprinklers on uh, on a cold, wet Friday night, turned the sprinklers on uh, protesters outside Parliament and they were peaceful protesters and he turned the sprinklers on them and then, of course, he brought out the speakers and had that repetitive sort of um, uh, inane uh, uh, music and, and announcements that were deliberately designed to try and drive people away. It, it's an attempt to psychologically demoralize and, um, uh, you know, cause someone such anxiety or angst or frustration that they leave, they go, right? 
and and it, it was him turning himself against peaceful protesters in our country. That is uh, not only is that sort of banana republic stuff, but it actually technically I think could fall within the definition of the UN conventions on. Uh, torture when you read the description it, it, you know I think you could probably say that technically what he was doing there was was sort of seems to fit that criteria but it wasn't good and it was an act of a man in power using his power against peaceful protesters citizens of a country I mean it surely meets the criteria for bullying at that basic level and then of course uh, there was the fact that uh, at the end of all of this behavior, he was uh, he was given a nice plum diplomatic posting overseas. It, there was no accountability. There was no punishment. There were no calls for his resignation. He must go now. No, no, no. Just the opposite. In fact, I saw some of the same people who are now demanding Uffendil must go for historic events that happened in his youth and when he was 19 and maybe early 20s, you know, so at university uh, age. And by the way, at that age, you were talking about just the, the potential for foolishness in the life of a, of a young man is just off the charts, particularly today. So you've got a couple of things here. You've got a perfect storm of, of testosterone and hormones that are flying around in a largely unregulated sort of fashion in the body of a young man, coupled with a body now that is capable of following through on the, the various urges that sort of crop up in his life. And then uh, thirdly, uh, you've got a brain that is another eight to 10 years away from its full development. And so impulse control and decision making uh, is not at all what it should be. And that's why young men need very careful mentoring and accountability while they are young men. And then on top of that, he's in an environment now where we live and we actually celebrate a lot of people do. A lot of these same people who are critiquing him for his university behaviors are the same people who celebrate the culture of licentiousness that is encouraged on university campuses. It is just absurd. It's like we celebrate the drinking, the boozing, the promiscuous sex, the complete lack of virtue, and then people turn around and say, oh my gosh, that guy didn't act with any virtue when he was at, at university. Sack him now. It's like, well, how about we actually start getting a little bit morally consistent here as a society? And, and if we're actually going to make these demands of people, how about we start being authentic and actually not hypocrites and we start living and valuing that culture? Uh, you know, because it's just, it, yeah, that's a whole nother story for a whole other day because there's so much that could be unpacked about all of that. But the point is that people were more interested in punishing him for that than they seem to be for punishing Mallard for things he was actually doing right now. There's the Labour Youth Camp incident. Remember, that was a, an incident of sexual assault. It's very recent. Um, everything was sort of sealed, closed file, hush-hush, uh, uh, you know, trust us, it's all dealt with, and there's no ramifications for that. Where's the accountability for that, for what happened in that situation where there was an actual sexual assault and it's recent? What about Darren Hughes? Remember MP Darren Hughes? You may or may not remember this name. Go and Google him. Uh, this is a, a Labour MP who has a, a credible allegation made of not historic, but like literally while he's an MP, is accused of um, drugging and sexually assaulting uh, a young man. And... Uh, the accusation breaks, he denies it, and then literally, like 24 hours, was it? Or maybe 48, I can't remember the exact details, but very quickly, within a matter of days, he resigns and is gone, Burgett, and, and, and leaves. Because uh, clearly there was something serious that went on here, but didn't go any further. So it, it's it's this... There's no sense of proportionality in all of this, and there's no sense of, of um, this being authentic and consistent. It's clearly a political hit job for some people. Absolutely, in my mind, no doubt about this. And you can see it. I mean, 
it's not that hard to look and see where people's record is on this. It's not a principled thing. They might cloak it in the language of principle, but it really is politics and personalities that, that's really driving a lot of this. Um, and, and on that note, th- there was a certain sense of irony I noted this week. This very same week is the week that the Labour government and the Greens, of course, and a lot of progressives, well, in fact, the majority seem to be cheering this on. They struck down the three strikes law for criminal offenders. So serious criminal offenders who've got three strikes and they struck down that law. Well, here's the irony. The same time people are celebrating, like the exact same day where they're celebrating the, the removal of three strikes because it's draconian and it's uh, it's it's too hard on people and it doesn't recognize the potential for a person to make mistakes and to change and to be different these same people are exacting a policy of zero strikes for their political opponents so Sam Ufendil he doesn't even get three strikes he doesn't even get one strike he gets zero strikes I'm sorry Sam you had your strikes 20 years ago you failed and so now you're guilty and you can't be reformed we refuse to believe you you are such a guilty horrible offender we must boot you from parliament you must be sacked out of your job the same day that they are celebrating the removal of three strikes because it's too hard on people there's just there's no principle here there's no consistency i'm not surprised by that because we are not even thinking these days we are just feeling our way through life i feel I feel he's guilty. I feel he's insincere. No offense to your feelings, but that's not good enough. You can't live and structure a humane and flourishing human society based on people's fifis. You just can't. Which brings me to the complete, uh, I think, insanity at times, but also unprofessionalism of the New Zealand media or of, it seems to me, to be quite a few people in the New Zealand media, not all of them obviously, but there has been media behaviour in response to this incident. I, I, I Look, there's things to critique about mainstream media. There's lots of things that are worthy of critique. There's no doubting there is a crisis in the mainstream media and there's also no doubting that a lot of people in the mainstream media are either don't care about it or don't recognize that there is a crisis. They refuse to believe that their industry, their profession is actually in crisis and it's in freefall mode. And basically, I'm not even sure if it's in freefall. I think it's probably hit the ground, hasn't it? And it's sort of bleeding out. But but there is just such a lack of public trust in the media. And uh, a lot of people don't seem to want to accept that from inside the media. And, And that's understandable. When you're inside an institution, you often struggle to see the serious failings of the institution. You need to actually be outside of it for a bit to recognize that. But what we've seen this week is I think on a whole nother level. I've seen behaviors that I just, I can't get my head around and they don't bode well at all for the state of the media moving forward. There has just been a frenzy that they have driven and that has been absolutely out of control and there's just been serious issues all over the place. Here's one that I noticed early on. This is a guy called Aaron Damon. I think it's Damon. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing the last name correctly. But he is a News Talk ZB's new, uh, I think it's chief political um, reporter, and he's based in Parliament. And he tweets this out uh, at 6.12 p.m. on Monday. So this is when the story is just breaking, remember. This is only a few hours later. And this is what he's tweeting out. This is the chief political reporter for a mainstream media outlet in this country. And he says this, Bullying in younger years is often dismissed, but enough with the privilege of violence. 
where some can become MPs on platforms of law and order without sharing they once beat a kid black and blue. Public may never have known about Uffendal. Tell and leave up to the voters. This is unbelievable. When I saw this tweet, the story is literally just broken. And when I saw this tweet, my first thought was, so uh, are you not going to be covering this story at all, Aaron? Like, this is a political story. You're the chief political editor based in Parliament. So I assume that based on the fact that you have clearly jumped into this story and are passing judgment on the the chief subject of the story, and you're talking about things like the privilege of violence, and you're condemning this man, and you're clearly indicating here that you don't believe that he is uh, worthy to be in Parliament, that he's guilty of something very serious here. You're passing judgment on him. Uh, you, there's no way you can cover the story, right? Because you can't have credibility. You cannot have credibility as an independent, objective observer. We can't trust you, based on that tweet, to actually report objectively about this incident. A couple of days later, he tweets this. He says, you don't just attack someone out of the blue. Yesterday's admission from Sam Uffendal of having been a bully was unsurprising. And a bully has a track record. There were always more. Unless this report completely clears him of wrongdoing, he needs to go. Again, what are you doing, Aaron? You're supposed to be a journalist and a reporter. And here you are declaring not only the fact that you absolutely, um, you're passing moral judgments about the chief subject of the story here, and publicly so, but you are also now demanding the course of action that should happen here. What do you even mean by that? This report completely clears him of wrongdoing. So does the report have to come back and say none of this is true? So the events he's confessed to never actually happened? Or, uh, or, or, or what if the report comes back and says, yeah, it did happen, but uh, he's dealt with it. Um, you know, the victim's happy. Uh, you know, this other incident, there's a, a quibble back and forth between flatmates at university and there's no clear indication, uh, you know, that he's guilty of anything more uh, than yelling at a person and calling, calling them fatty. So, which is what the accusation is, right? He banged on the door and um, he called her fatty. Uh, and I've got to say, that is um, unvirtuous behaviour, and it is behaviour that absolutely deserves to be called out. But the way people are reacting to that, they are acting like that man was uh, Jack from The Shining, and he was banging on a door with an axe, you know, here's Johnny. That's how people are actually reacting. That is not what happened. Let's be clear about this. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I just think some perspective here is needed. But the point is, you know, he should be, he needs to go. Well, again, how are you going to be trusted to report objectively on this when you talk about the fact that what happens if the National Party decides, well, enough is enough. In fact, we think he's actually genuine in his contrition and we think he's got something to offer politics. So we're going to give the man a second chance because that's what humane people do. And so he stays in politics. What are you going to do then? Your reporting on the National Party decision then is going to be tainted by what you've told us here, that you quite clearly believe that it's uh, illegitimate for him to stay. And that's going to creep into your reporting, isn't it? You see, this is the problem. It's not even an attempt to try and distance themselves from this. It is journalists who seem to have a vocational identity crisis disorder where they seem to think they're political activists. And it's their job to actually direct traffic in society. It's not. Your job is to tell us what's happening with the traffic, not to get out in the traffic and start directing it. They're not the same thing at all. And then, of course, we had the press conference on Tuesday. Now, I didn't hear the press conference at the time. I'm busy working. But later that night, when I sat down after the kids were in bed, I ended up listening to the whole press conference. And 
holy moly, there were some inane and unprofessional things going on at that press conference. It was just unbelievable. And I tell you what, from my perspective, as someone who actually has a background in communications and trains others in this space, Sam Ufundul conducted himself very well. Don't be gaslit by the haters who are claiming, oh, he was incoherent and he didn't make sense. No. So I'd heard that and I thought, oh, this is going to be a train wreck. So I thought, well, I'll watch it for my own, um, I guess, uh, being informed and, and, and to try and get my head around a bit more, see if I can gauge who this man really is. And this was, by the way, the first time I'd ever heard the man speak was at that press conference. And I was very impressed. He handled every question well. He stayed calm. He didn't shy away from anything. He was, I think he showed genuine contrition. This guy is either a complete psychopath and is able to fake emotions uh, in such a way that make him really believable, or he's telling the truth. There's no other option on the table here. The way he conducted himself in that press conference, I would encourage you to go and watch it. He was very, he was very clear with the journalists. But despite all of that, you have journalists asking questions that have already been asked. They then go into a name territory that really is just sort of gossip level stuff. You've got, uh, at one point, a journalist got into a back and forth with him that got quite heated. Like they were, it was effectively like standing before a kangaroo court and having, you know, the judge or, or a, um, a lawyer um, basically interrogating you and turning hostile on you. It was like that. There were sort of two or three questions that went back and forth. Sam Ufendal was very calm and he conducted himself very well under that sort of situation or in that situation. But just listening to that, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. This is journalists who have lost perspective. This is journalists who are not acting ethically in some of these situations I heard on the Tuesday press conference. These are journalists who it's quite clear that whether it's their own ambition, their own misguided beliefs about their place in the world, uh, or maybe it's just purely them, which is probably quite a high likelihood, uh, trying to get that salacious little piece of clickbait so that they can get their name on a byline that gets lots of clicks. And of course, that's good for uh, for the media outlet and it's great for their career, right? But it was just, it was honestly, it was gutter groveling stuff. It was tabloid journalism. It, it, I, mean, I don't like using the word journalism on the end of tabloid. It was tabloid muckraking stuff, a lot of it. It just was not flash at all. And it was clear, it was honestly, it was like watching a paparazzi mob mobbing a celebrity. And you know what paparazzi mobs are like? They're not rational. It's it's because it's not deep stuff. It's vacuous. And that was the problem. There was no sense of genuine engagement with a human being. They were like a rabid pack of animals. It really was a frenzied witch hunt. And then this happened. I think was this Wednesday morning. I'm trying to remember exactly when this happened. But uh, Christopher Luxon went on, uh, was it Morning Report, wasn't it, with Guy on Espina, and this happened. I'm going to play you the audio. Have a listen to this. It's about a minute and a half or so long. This, to me, is just absolutely astounding for a couple of reasons. So let's have a listen now to this media interview. Is there a culture problem in National, selecting a series of men behaving badly? Look, I, I, yeah, I, I know this is frustrating. It's frustrating for me. It's frustrating for uh, a lot of National Party members and supporters, for sure. But if I can just go through you know, what has actually happened is that you know, we lay down pretty clear expectations of what we expect from candidates and my MPs, um, and we're very clear about that. Uh, and in this case, 
uh, as you saw with the King's uh, College bullying. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're not going to go yeah. all through that, mate. You put, you put your talking points down. I want to talk about culture in the National Party, right? Do you remember, do you remember these MPs? Andrew Falloon? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, Guy, and I know what you're talking okay. about. Hamish what Walker? Yes, I do. Yes. Jake Bazant? Yes. Aaron Gilmore? Uh, yes, I've, I, I don't, yep, didn't know him personally, yep. Jamie Lee Ross? Yes, yes, I know, I know what you're talking about. Go on, Todd uh, Barclay? Yes. So you've got an issue here, haven't you? Well, what I'm saying to you is um, we have, we're working hard on making sure that we have really good candidate selection processes, and Sylvia Wood and I have worked hard on that over this period of time. We've got much more rigorous uh, vetting and referencing processes, but we're also reliant on candidates to be really transparent about their past behaviour as yeah, well. Yeah, but, but that sounds almost farcical when you look at, and I've just named, I've probably left a few out. That's just, that's half a dozen people that have been selected for the National Party, it looks like you're selecting arrogant and entitled men with no sense of public duty. Um, honestly, Guy, that is not um, what, I, what my expectations are going forward as a new leader and with a new president of the party. So I don't know about you, but two things strike me straight away about that. Number one is I was really disappointed in Luxon's uh, apparent complete lack of fortitude. His, his lack of courage, his lack of ability in just standing up and calling out what is completely unacceptable on the part of a journalist. This is not ethical professional journalism. That What you just heard there was far from it. And that's the second point that really strikes me, is just the completely unprofessional nature of what you just heard there. When you have a journalist say, oh, nah, come on, mate, put down your talking points. We're not going to have any of that today. As, as a... a, a a guest is partway through their answer, that journalist is out of control and they should be called out for it. If I was Luxon, I would have said, excuse me, Guyon, uh, quite frankly, you need to show more respect for your guests. I'm here to speak to you because you've invited me to speak to you. You asked me a question. I'm trying to answer it. Your job is to listen and then to probe at the end. Your job is not to rudely interrupt me and tell me how I should be conducting myself. He should have called him out. By the way, Ardern would have called him out. And here's the funny thing. Like, people who know me well know that I have big uh, disagreements with Ardern, both morally and on different policy settings and I think even on leadership abilities. But there's no doubting that she does not let journalists uh, disrespect her and walk all over her and, and treat her in an undignified way. She will hold her own. She will steer them down. And that's what you actually need to do, especially in a situation like that. That was completely disgraceful. And then when he went on and started listing names of MPs, I'm not a fan of Luxon, by the way. I'm not impressed by Luxon at all. But quite frankly, how can that man be held accountable for uh, MPs who ha were, weren't even around when he was there? Like he wasn't there when they were doing their thing. He wasn't appointed by, the, well, he didn't appoint those people. This is just insane. And so I would have called that out as well. I would have said, look, guy, and let me stop you right now before you embarrass yourself and, and go any further with this little political hit job list. Unless you're planning to actually 
after immediately after you've uh, listed all these Labor uh, national MPs, you're about to list all of the Labor MPs like Trevor Mallard, Darren Hughes, David Benson Pope, etc., etc., who have been embroiled in serious scandals. Actually, while they are politicians and critique the Labor Party, then this is just a fruitless, politicised hit job, isn't it, Guyon? And I'd put it all back on him. That's the kind of courage you actually need in that situation. And it was just shocking, though, to even see that kind of stuff happening, that list of, honestly, when Guy and Espen said to him, you know, doesn't National have a problem? The only word he listed out of that list, you know, with uh, entitled men, I think you could hear him. He was on the verge of saying entitled white men and maybe something in his brain said, oh, don't, don't say that, Guy on. But I tell you, that, that was just unbelievable. And now the correct response to that is not to say, well, I don't expect things this going forward and I expect things to be different. The correct response there is to say, look, Guy on, be realistic, be reasonable. A political party, particularly the major parties, they are large entities and they attract all sorts of people. And politics, one of the faults and flaws in politics is that it attracts people who like wielding power. And while we would all like to live in a utopia where this sort of thing doesn't happen, the simple truth is that in actual fact, there are often cases and regularly there will be cases of people who are not suited to politics and who are drawn like uh, bees to honey. They are drawn to the scent of power. And so what happens? You get bad apples. It's like any organization, any institution, any endeavor involving human beings. You'll have a minority of bad apples who attract themselves or uh, uh, get engaged with and involved with a particular institution or group, right? That is not a valid critique at all on a party. And like I said, if we're going to play this game, let's now talk about all the Labour MPs. But he didn't do any of that. And uh, yeah, that's, that's I guess you could say that secondary. The point is that Guy and Espiner showed a complete lack of professionalism in what you just heard there. It's not journalism. Whatever that is, it's not journalism. Uh, quite frankly, um, I think it's embarrassing because yesterday in the media, they had got to the point where they were revealing uh, really important details about this story. Did you know that uh, Sam Uffendel's flat was actually one of the dirtiest in Dunedin at the time? Did you know that? This flat was uh, dirty. The cleanliness of this flat tells us a lot about this man's character. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> this is just this is just absurd. It's inane. It is embarrassing. New Zealand media, sit down, you're making the place look untidy. You need to up your game. There's a reason why people don't trust you, and this stuff is just not helping at all. When Barry Soper put forward what is a very reasonable proposition, what, about 24 hours or so ago, when he said, this has all of the hallmarks of a political hit job, and he said, I think I know who's involved, but I'm not going to mention anything about that at all at this stage, but it has, make no mistake about it, this has all the hallmarks of a political hit job. And people were like ridiculing him online and saying, what's happened to Barry Soper? He's lost the plot. He's an idiot. Uh, they ridiculed the man for it. And, and there were people claiming he should be held accountable for putting forward that proposition. No, no, he shouldn't, because it's actually a very reasonable proposition. To look at what's happening right now, it is clear that even if it didn't start this way, this has absolutely evolved into a political assassination attempt. And by the way, when I saw Sam Uffendall conduct himself at that press conference the way that he did, I thought to myself, gosh, I don't think the Labour uh, government or the Labour Party is going to want this man around. They're going to try and do everything they can to sink his career right now because 
Holy moly, he actually conducted himself. There were shades of Jacinda Ardern's communication abilities. I don't mean the bad stuff. I mean the good stuff. He handled himself with a confidence. He just, he was very fluid and fluent, and he was very confident in a situation where it's absolute hostility. Now, if he can be like that in that situation, holy moly, there's a lot of potential for that guy to actually be a party leader. Seriously, I'd never, I just, I didn't know the guy. I'd never heard him speak, didn't know anything about him until I saw that press conference and I realized, man, there's there's a lot of potential here for the, for this guy's future. So, yeah, I'm not surprised this has turned into a political assassination attempt and I don't think that's unreasonable at all to say. It is clearly, it is clearly a political assassination attempt. There's no doubt about that. So, I mean, even if you disagree with Barry Soper that it's a political hit job, there's no doubt that it's evolved into that and whether or not you think it was at the beginning or not, um, I don't think it's unreasonable to put forward that proposition based on what we've seen over the last few days. In fact, I think it's irrational to say, oh, no, there's nothing at all untoward going on here. This is just normal journalistic and, and political life as usual and someone's just been found out and there's nothing really over the topic. No, it's not at all. In fact, we've had an incident that happened. This is this is how this whole week has become very, very fascinating. So just yesterday afternoon, I think it was about 4 p.m., wasn't it, uh, we had a Labour MP, Dr. Gaurav Sharma, and apologies if I haven't pronounced the first name correctly, but Dr. Gaurav Sharma, who is a Labour MP, published an op-ed in the New Zealand Herald making very serious allegations of current widespread bullying within Parliament, and in particular he talked about his own party, the Labour Party, including the Whips, and he said the Prime Minister's office is involved. That is serious, extremely serious, what he has alleged in that op-ed. And you'd have to say it's a very odd thing to do for a Labour MP or any MP to do this to their own party, seemingly totally out of the blue, and to go public and to publish an op-ed like this. So the man clearly, in his mind anyway, he believes this is serious and it is not being dealt with and the culture is bad and he believes He's got to do something about it. Now, the other option is, like, he could be wrong about this. So he could be deluded or he could be, I don't know why, I really don't know why, like, this doesn't really make sense to launch this kind of attack from him on his own party. It could be. It could be just someone who's just really malicious and is just telling lies, but it does seem strange. This is a man who is actually a medical doctor. Like, he, he's a he's a smart chap. Uh, and he's qualified. And it's just a very odd thing. The whole thing is odd. So it could be, I think it's more likely if this is not true that he has exaggerated. He's just, uh, he's so fed up. He's maybe the emotion of it has got to him and he's overstated things. That would be the the likely scenario because it's a very strange thing for someone to do just to make up a, a flat out lie like this and then to go and put it in the media Gosh, that's that. That's the stuff that people who have had some sort of psychotic break do. It's not 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 at all normal. But here's the thing: at this stage, the allegations are current. They are of widespread bullying, and it's serious. And it includes the prime minister's office. And I tell you what, the media response so far seems noticeably different to what it was just 48 hours ago, or at the start of this week on Monday and Tuesday, when the Sam Uffendahl historic bullying allegations were being discussed. Remember, historic allegations, two decades old, from a person's uh, high school and uh, late adolescence 
uh, at like 19 years of age at the, at the, in the university years compared to current widespread involving the Prime Minister's office. Straight away it was noticeable that there's a strange lack of that rabidity that we saw earlier this week. They went after Uffendil like a pack of ravenous wolves. This time, oh, we're a bit more nuanced and we're not as ravenous and I don't know, maybe they've gorged themselves already and they're lying there like the fattened wolves that they are and just can't be bothered actually being consistent because they're too full. They've had their blood for the week. They've, they've got enough clickbaits. Or maybe, maybe because this is a political ally, a political friend, uh, a, a government which is funding their organisations. It is. There's no getting around that. And people say, oh, but it's not going directly into their pockets. It's paying for public interest journalism. It's still paying for these organizations to create content, to sell clicks, to make more money. It's helping the organization. There is a quid pro quo that happens in these situations where people fund you or your organization. It is just unavoidable. You do treat them differently. You do show greater deference, greater respect, and greater consideration towards them. It is just the reality of it. Anyone who has been involved in a charitable organization and worked with donors knows exactly this. They know this. It is, it is, this is just human nature 101. But the point is, for whatever reason, they are acting very differently about these allegations. They are not showing that rabid witch hunt uh, mentality that they 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 just went they went mental. Let's let's be clear about this. They went crazy at the start of this week. But are these current bullying allegations that are quite serious? Oh no 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 no. There's a lot more nuance. In fact, stuff published an article about this yesterday and twice in the same article. So this is the first article about the alleged allegations that they have published, and twice. In that same article, they say this, and I'll quote here, no evidence was provided to support the claims. That's what they said. So someone is alleging that they are the victim of serious widespread bullying in the highest institutions of our land, and Stuff says uh, no evidence was provided to support the claims. Well, I don't remember reading that at all in Stuff when they were talking about this allegation about the flatmate. They never said that. They never said, well, you know, just so you're aware, no evidence was provided to support the claim that he stood outside the door, banged on the door and, and called her fatty. There was no evidence provided to back up that claim. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. The point is, though, their approach is completely different. Twice in one article, they point that out. The tone of the article is so very, very different. It is blatantly obvious. We are basically right now getting front row seats to a very, very fascinating real-time test of media integrity and also of the integrity of those people who have spent the first couple of days of this very same week demanding the resignation of Sam Uffendil. Well, are you going to be people of principle? Are you going to demand the resignation of the Prime Minister based on this current allegation? Nothing more, just allegations, but they're current and they're very serious. Are you going to demand the, the resignation of the party? Whoops. Seriously, this is just very, very fascinating. We're about to actually, and I think, uh, I'm not a, a betting man, but if I was, I'd be willing to bet dollars to donuts that we are going to see a lot of people and groups, including people in our media, completely fail this integrity test and basically prove uh, in a very short space of time that what they were doing earlier this week was not at all professional or principled. It was something else altogether. Now, that raises the interesting question, well, what about Sam Uffendel and what about the outcome in this? 
and, and it got me thinking, well, would any apology actually be satisfactory for the ravenous mob? Would they have been satisfied with anything? What if he had apologized five years after the bullying incident? What, what would they have done then? I guarantee you that the narrative would actually be it took Sam Ufendal a full five years to apologize. So they would still spin it negatively. I guarantee it. Why? Because negative stuff sells. It gets clicks. That's what the media is into. And if you're a political opponent of the man, you hate him and you'll say whatever you want to to try and bring him down. Uh, what if he apologized five years before becoming a candidate? I guarantee you that the headlines would not just state that fact. They would pass judgment. I guarantee you that the media would be saying things like he only apologized five years before becoming a candidate or it was just five years before announcing his political career that he apologized. In other words, they would load it with the implication. I guarantee you, I'd put money on it. I'd put money on the fact that there's very little that this man could do that would actually be satisfactory because you're dealing with an irrational, frenzied mob. Once the pitchforks are sharpened, the torches are lit, and they're roaming the streets, you know, guilt or innocence doesn't matter. Nuance doesn't matter. It, none of all that just goes right out the window, and so I don't think there's much that he could have done to really appease the baying mob. I mean, what if what if Sam Ufendal had entered politics five years from now, or ten years from now, right? So very very different. There's a few more years between him and the previous incidents. Would that be enough? I don't think it would be based on what I'm reading. Because if I apply these principles that people are claiming we should all be living by now in New Zealand, they would still have found him guilty. They would still be demanding his resignation because there's nothing substantial that's changed. It's only a few more years has been added onto the tab, but nothing substantial is different about the situation. What if he had confessed this regularly on the campaign trail and the voters still said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to get behind this guy. I guarantee you that all that would have done, by the way, is ended up, I think, destroying any chances of him ever entering, entering politics. Because I think what would have happened is journalists would have then gone on their own uh, personal um, fishing expeditions to try and dig up any and every piece of dirt that they could. Why? Because it's a sleazy, easy, we uh, <laughs> I was going to say e sleazy, easy, wheezy, but it's a sleazy, easy way to make a name for yourself is to say, oh yeah, he's apologised, but you know what? Imagine if I wrote a story which actually showed other people had other horrible things to say about Sam Ufendal. That'd actually uh, probably get me a lot of notoriety. And in the current state of dysfunctional journalism, I'd probably have people patting me on the back and saying, yeah, that was great top calibre journalism. <laughs> you know, because that's what happens in the world at the moment. And so you can see how this whole thing, I don't necessarily think that there's anything feasible or practical about the suggestion that, you know, he should have been constantly uh, confessing this. But what if he had confessed this regularly on the campaign trail? Would that have satisfied them? I don't think it would have. Would this be different if it was a Labour or a Greens MP? And you know what? I think it absolutely would be different because we've got evidence of them treating, for example, Trevor Mallard, very clear example of the difference. The tribalism in all of this is just so palpable, it is not funny. And that's something we've got to be really careful of ourselves, not getting caught in the tribalism. A couple of other things before I talk about um, the harms that are on all of this and, and what I think we need to consider uh, and our response to this. 
What messages are sending to New Zealand? Well, I think it's sending a very dangerous message that we are a nation without redemption. It very, well, it sort of seems to me very clear that there are a, a not insignificant number of people in this country who now have a very merciless approach. And I'm not surprised. We have become a pagan nation. Now, that shouldn't shock you. We are a pagan nation now. We have abandoned a Judeo Christian heritage by and large. There are groups of people who still live it and who believe it and allow that to shape their life and their family and their communal uh, engagement with others. Uh, but there are a lot of people who have just abandoned that altogether and we are now a pagan nation. Uh, we've gone from the one God to the many gods. That is what paganism is in a nutshell. Paganism and relativism. It might not seem like it that initially you think, oh, but aren't we relativists? Aren't we secularists? Uh, that's a confused understanding of what secularism actually is, by the way. Secularism is a concept that was created by the Judeo-Christian tradition. To The secular realm is not the atheist realm. The secular realm is the realm that's outside of the life of the church. You know, Things like governance fall under the secular, for example. Uh, but we've completely distorted that. We don't understand our own traditions anymore. Uh, and we don't recognize that in actual fact, paganism and the pantheism, the pantheon of gods that you embrace and you decide what God is for you and what to believe about that God, that is, that's the pagan way, right? We've gone from the one to the many. We are in a pagan nation and pagan nations, they don't forgive. They are not, mercy is not a pagan trait. Uh, if you know your history, you just, you know this. It's the Judeo-Christian tradition that profoundly shapes and changes and builds the West. And the concept of mercy is very, very different uh, as a result. And, uh, the, the priority that is given to mercy. In fact, I, I smell a Nietzschean, repugnant Nietzschean odor in what I've seen happening over the last couple of days because Friedrich Nietzsche was the man who looked down his nose disdainfully at Christianity precisely because he believed its commitment to things like compassion and mercy held society back. He saw it as being destructive and we had to go back to an earlier time, a pre-Christian time where they didn't actually obsess so much about mercy and compassion. And so we are, it clearly seems to me that we are lapsing into that or there are people who are lapsing into that, a nation without redemption. And that's a really, really troubling thing. So how should we live in the midst of that? If we are people who claim to be part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, do we actually live that? Because we should. We shouldn't be just dragged along mindlessly by the culture and the pop culture and the talking heads of the day. We should know who we are and what we are on about, and we should live accordingly and judge the world around us accordingly, according to those standards. So what are our standards? What are our philosophies and our traditions? Well, we believe, as Christ himself tells us, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Not let he who is without the wrong politics cast the first stone. So, you know, being of the wrong politics is not the sin here. It's sin that's the sin. We are all sinners. And so we need to be very, very careful when we start engaging in the dirty business of condemning others and condemnation and passing judgment. I think especially in this situation, because it's pretty clear there's some pretty strong and compelling indications that this man is truly sorry for his past. And these events have happened in his past when he was a young man, a much younger man, in fact, an adolescent boy and then an early young adulthood. And so there's all of those factors that matter here, even more so. But we should be very careful just in general about uh, if we want to get involved in this business, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. How many times must we forgive? 
Well, this was, if you're a Catholic, you'll know that yesterday in the cycle of readings, this was the gospel reading of the day. How many times must we forgive? Not seven, but 77 times, right? You must keep forgiving is what Christ is saying there. And then he tells the story, the parable of the the servant who is actually guilty, but his master forgives him. And then what he does is he goes about and finds someone else who owes him a debt and he is not forgiving of that other man. And so the servants tell the master about what this um, servant who was forgiven, how he's been treating other people. And the master throws him in jail and says, you were showing mercy, but you didn't show that to other people. We are that unforgiving servant. That's us. We have received this grace, this profound grace that we do not deserve from God. And so we have an obligation to show grace to others. That's our tradition. Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Again, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and not a literal human sacrifice of Sam Ufendel, for example. Think about the story of the prodigal son, and there's several amazing things about that story. Uh, and, and this is leaving aside the sort of the the um, theological symbolism with um, the old covenant, the new covenant, etc. Just some of those basic things uh, that are in that uh, event in relation to forgiveness and repentance and judgment. And so you've got the father who doesn't just wait at the gate every day for his guilty son, but rushes out to meet the son. He leaves the gate and rushes towards him to embrace him. And not only that, but remember the older brother who's very jealous about all of this? And and he is the one in that story who is recognized as, at that point anyway, as having a serious failing. So initially it's the younger son who has failed in his moral behavior, but then it's the older son who hasn't actually initially done anything wrong, but then starts to pass judgment on his brother. Why is the fattened calf being killed for this guy, right? Why are we letting this guy still have a job? He should be sacked. There's, there's taints of the older brother in all of this. Uh, St. Paul, St. Paul, highly regarded apostle. We read his writings all the time. If you're a Christian and you read your scriptures, you read the writings of St. Paul all the time. This man literally went from a place of serious, violent persecution of the church to becoming a leader in that church in a very short order of time. The simple thing is that we believe in the Judeo-Christian tradition that we cannot know the heart of another person. We can't. We cannot pass judgment on their motivations, and we cannot pass judgment on the eternal outcome of their actions because we can't know the heart. We can't read another person's soul. We can pass judgment on the rightness or the wrongness of any particular action, but we can't pass judgment on the culpability of a person, You know how culpable God will hold them for their actions, and we can't pass judgment on their heart and their mind. So when Sam Ufendel says that he is genuinely remorseful 22 years and 19 years after these two um, particular incidents, that he is sorry, then I surely, I have to take him at his word unless he says to me either A, no, I'm not actually remorseful, or B, we have proof, absolute proof that he's not remorseful because we can't know his heart. And so charity demands that we assume that there is good intent there until we absolutely know. Otherwise, that is our way. That is our tradition. Don't try and wriggle out of it. 
I know I like to from time to time because it's comfortable and it's easy to pass judgment on other people and it feels nice even to do that. We make ourselves feel good by, you know, claiming that we're better than other people. Of course I'm better than that person, right? And so it's comfortable, it's even enjoyable to do these kinds of things, but it's wrong. And it's not our tradition. It's a violation of our tradition. And so we shouldn't be doing it with this particular scenario that we've seen unfolding in front of us all of this week. What you need to actually do is charity demands that we take him at his word and we examine his life right now. Look at his life. Look at his recent life. Look at his family life. Look at his actions. Look at his business life, how he's conducted himself of late. That will tell you what's really going on. And it probably won't take long, by the way, to quickly discover whether or not this man truly has changed. Whether he's actually honest in what he's saying here or whether he's just fudging the truth for his own political expedience. I don't see indication of that. I could be wrong, right? This could all change tomorrow. But at this stage, that, that's not the case. And even if it did come out that, and even if he does end up getting sacked, the simple fact is none of that will make right what has happened this week on the part of the media, the, the condemnation, the judgment, the merciless response to this. This has just been really, really troubling. And this brings me to the, to the reasons why I made this podcast, because there are some very serious harms that this poses to our society. So first of all, if this is now going to be the new standard, then basically no one will be pure enough to enter politics in this country. You just won't, because no one is a saint or an angel. Uh, I, I just the, the, you would you would struggle to find people who don't have some sort of skeleton in their closet, some sort of youthful failing on their part. Even less people will actually want to stand. My brother-in-law, who was over from Abu Dhabi just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this. Funnily enough, this had nothing to do with any of this sort of stuff. It was just in general we were talking about politics and why politics in the West of late doesn't seem to be attracting a lot of good, skilled, competent leadership. And he made a very, very relevant and important point. And he said, look, the reality is that for a lot of skilled and competent and good people, uh, they don't want to have their lives subjected to the absolute over-the-top and inane scrutiny. They don't want to be torn apart and then constantly scrutinized for every little thing they do, which is the norm now. And they'd rather not. They'd rather just get on with living an ordinary life where they don't have to deal with all of that garbage. And, and I think he's absolutely right. And it was very prescient when you think about what's happening now in our country because even less people will want to stand. If this is now going to be the norm, we're going to go and look at your high school record and see how you conducted yourself there and then deem you to be guilty today, 22 years later, based on actions, what you did or probably didn't do even when you were in high school. Um, we will end up with a democracy, by the way, that's not truly representative. We, we just it won't be representative anymore. It'll be filled with people who have never made mistakes. But I want leaders who have learnt from their mistakes. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for, actually. I think it's a, a, a like there's something about that character development and maturity and uh, experiential development. I don't want a person who's never made any mistakes and therefore has never learnt anything and is now sitting in the highest office in the land. I want someone who's actually made mistakes because the reality is most human beings do. And so to have a truly representative government, you have to have people who have made mistakes in their past. And on top of that, politics will now become a place of witch hunts. And it is just insane when you think about this new 
supposed standard where what will happen is, and I've already seen indications of this online where people are saying, okay, folks, it's now open season. We need to do this to Labor MPs, to Green MPs. So people have got into tribalism and they've looked at what's happened here. They've recognized the tribalism and the uncontrolled, unbridled rage of certain others in the media and the unprofessionalism. And now they're saying, well, we need to actually turn the same beast on the Labour Party, on the Greens, on our political opponents. This is a disaster. It will destroy the life of our nation to, to, to do this kind of stuff. There were already issues in politics. It was far from perfect. A lot of reformers needed in that space. But this, if this is to be the new standard now, where we go back and we troll a person's events from 20 years ago and when they were children, adolescence or early young adulthood, and we hold them accountable still 20 years later, for those failings, then, I mean, we're in real trouble. Imagine if this standard was applied to you when it came to something like a job interview. So you were a, you you lived a really good life. You were married, you had kids, you'd really made a go of things. When you were younger, you were a bit of a troublemaker in school. Maybe some uh, bullying incidents. Maybe you'd been rude to teachers. Maybe you'd been suspended. You know, that, that's most people, right? And so let's say, you know, you're applying for a job. And you're a really good candidate, you've got all the qualifications, and they say, look, we really like you, but before we can proceed any further, we need you to provide us with all of your high school report cards. We've seen your academic outcomes, and so what? We want your report cards now, and we need someone we can talk to from your old high school, and we also need to uh, see all of your academic records, any disciplinary stuff from when you were at university. Uh, yeah, I know, I know, it was 20 years ago, but sure, we just need to see that, and we need to be able to speak to someone. Maybe you've got a dean from the university or someone like that we can talk to. And so you dutifully provide the stuff and then they ring you back two days later and they say, look, I'm sorry, but you are not fit for this job. We were told about what happened. We, we were told that when you were in high school, you swore at a teacher. We were told that there was a period of about a year or two where you were just really disruptive in class. You wouldn't listen and you were rude to your fellow students. Uh, in university, we found out that uh, you were turning up late to classes. Uh, some people thought that you looked hungover and that you were um, engaging in drunkenness and that you would regularly you know, get quite loutish uh, at student parties and stuff like that. So I'm sorry, we just can't believe that uh, you have changed at all. Uh, nothing is different clearly in your life. You are that same person that you were 20 years ago. Uh, you are guilty of these bad things and you cannot redeem yourself. So no, you don't get the job. You wouldn't accept it. You wouldn't tolerate it. You would not think that was good or just or normal at all. You see, the big thing that's missing in all of this is proportionality. These are events that happened 20 years ago. So 22 years and then 19 years ago. So the question I've asked to several people since is, well, what does the statute of limitations actually look like on this? Now, please don't come at me with some people trying to say, oh, are you saying that boys and young men shouldn't be held accountable for their actions? No, I'm not saying that. And if you knew me and you know how I conduct myself as a father with my son, you know that that is absolutely not what I believe at all. In fact, I believe young men should be held accountable, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about passing judgments of guilt or innocence on a man for events that happened 20 years ago when he was much younger, less mature, and had not actually made a good proper go of his life. 
that's what we're talking about doing. So what is the statute of limitations on this? Is it 25 years? Oh, okay, now I believe, you know, because the holy book of making it up as we go, uh, chapter 3, verse 666, uh, yes, and I did say that on purpose, uh, says to us, thou shalt not forgive a man at 20 years or 22 years, but thine holy countenance will shine upon that man at 25 years after the event, because 25 is a holy number. Is that how it works? Or is it 15 years? What if it's 15 years? Is that is that long enough? What about when the apologies are made? If he makes the apologies five years after the event or two years after the event, is that better? Does it mean that he's more moral if he made the apology, say, two years after the bullying rather than, than what, 20 years after, 20 or so years after uh, he engaged in the bullying? Are you more holy? What if he'd apologized 10 years? So somewhere in the middle, he'd be sort of half holy, half bad, right? So th- this whole thing is absurd. The more you think about it, the more you realize this is just, this is not humane. It's not just, it is not rational. It is absolutely not rational. These are the moral failings of a man who is now 20 years older than the adolescent and the young adult who engaged in those serious moral failings. Look at his life now and in the recent past. That's where you discern his character at this moment, not his actions as a much younger man and an adolescent boy 22 years ago, 19 years ago. Ask yourself this, is this justice or is this some sort of revenge? I don't want to live in a revenge-based cult. I want to live in a humane society. And this isn't about what's happening here. is isn't simply a a shame-based culture that's being proposed here. It's a condemnation-based culture. It's, It's perpetuating, I think, one of the disastrous great modern lies about politics, that appearance is more important than substance and that we can forget about the substance of how you're actually living your life and whether or not you might have actually redeemed yourself and whether or not you might actually be contrite. We are simply going to take things on appearance. We're going to look at you and we're going to pass judgment on you based on what we think of exteriors about you. You did a thing 20 years ago. We're going to hold that against you forever. We're not going to look to any sort of substance. It's just disastrous. And it is, as I said, this is a revenge-based, condemnation-based cult. I don't want to live in it. No one wants to live in it because, hey, if you live in that cult, don't be surprised when sooner or later the cult comes for you. You might be throwing the pitchfork around at the moment, but then you might be terribly shocked in five years' time to discover that you are the one skewered on the end of your own pitchfork. And by the way, I'm not surprised that modern progressives are leading the charge on this. Because a lot of modern progressives buy into the uh, flawed, seriously flawed ideologies of cultural Marxism, Marxism, uh, critical theory. And these ideologies have very bad and very wrong ideas about guilt and innocence and assigning guilt and innocence in particular. These are the same ideologies that believe that you can be held accountable and considered guilty for actions that happened hundreds of years ago that you didn't participate in, that you are not directly descended from in any way at all, but you can be held guilty for them simply because you have the same skin color as the people who might have carried out those actions. They have a terrible moral philosophy. They have a terrible and very flawed idea about guilt. So I am not surprised that it is modern progressives who buy these other deficient ideologies who are now leading the charge when it comes to the question of is this man guilty or not and should he be condemned 
or not. One last thing I'll say is this, because I recognize this episode's already gone on quite a long time. Uh, I will say this, and this is important, consistency, I think, on our part matters here too, and it matters a lot. This is this is not simply about politics. Like I said, I don't know Sam Offendil. Uh, I've I'd never heard him speak. I don't know anything about him until this week. I actually discovered a lot more about the man. That's really when I had my introduction to him. This is not about politics for me. As I said, and I really, I've sat down and I've searched my heart and my mind about this, and I am confident to say to you that if this had been Jacinda Ardern, my reaction would be exactly the same because there's an important principle here and we should live principled lives, not lives that are driven by vacuous emotionalism. We should live principled lives. We should live them, not be dragged through life by emotion. We should be in the driver's seat living that life and we should live principled lives and this is about a principle so consistency and integrity really really matters here we must have integrity about this so please please don't play the game of tribalism at all and when we discover that someone that we're quite fond of is in a similar situation or perhaps is in a serious situation whereby there is serious allegations against them we try and downplay it because it doesn't suit our tribe to actually treat these things the same way. Don't be uh, partisan. Don't be inconsistent. Be consistent here. And I think that consistency on our part really, really matters. Live by principles, not by personalities, not by politics. We must have integrity. We must have mercy. We must have prudence. We must have proportionality. We must have these things. This is our tradition, and if we claim to be disciples of that tradition, we should live that tradition as best as we can. In our flawed and perfect way, with plenty of failings along the way, we should continually be striving to live that tradition with faithfulness. With that, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, if you want that special patrons-only episode of the podcast every single week, go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. $5 or more per month gets you access to that patrons-only podcast, exclusive patrons-only podcast, every single week. That's patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. There is a link in the show notes. A huge thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Mm-hmm.